0: You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. First Samuel 4, verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. We've been working our way through the Old Testament. We began last week with an introduction to Samuel as a, a young child, he is now, we see, moving into a position of national leadership as a national prophet. The first time in 300 years at this point, the last was Moses, the last male prophet was Moses. And now Samuel is going to be taking that position. Uh, he delivered his first message we saw last week as a young child, maybe 8, 10 years old. And the message was that of Judgment. He was talking to Eli. God had revealed to him that Eli's house would be judged for their sin. And so Sam, Samuel delivers that message. And now in chapter 4, we're going to see the faithfulness of God's word as he brings that message to fruition. And what's going to happen here is this. Samuel now, at the, the beginning here, is going to fade into the background. And for the next four chapters, or three, I'm sorry, chapter 4, 5, and 6, the, the Bible then, in this portion... We'll focus on the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. It will take the highlight in the next few chapters. We'll talk about that this morning and next week as well. Let me remind you this morning of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, If you recall from last week, we talked briefly about it. The Ark was a portable box overlaid with pure gold, roughly four foot long by two feet wide, two feet deep. It was the most sacred piece of furniture in all of Israel. It stayed behind the Holy of Holies, behind a thick veil, and it only came out when Israel was on the move. Um, The Ark of God suggests several things to us. We need to keep this in mind as we move our way through the next couple weeks. It suggests the rulership of God. It, It was, the Ark itself was the visible sign of God's presence. And so, as Israel traveled, the ark would lead them. It was saying that God, Jehovah, Yahweh, is our God. It suggests rulership, it suggests relationship. Actually, revelation. In the ark were the Ten Commandments. Uh, God had revealed himself and who he was and what he expected. They were inside the ark. And then the ark suggests to the nation of Israel and to us as well the idea of reconciliation. For the ark contained the mercy seat. it was the mercy seat, that once a year the high priest would go in, and with the blood of an innocent lamb, would sprinkle it upon the ark. And so as we think about the Ark of God this morning, the ark speaks of a God who is ruling, speaking and forgiving. Chapter four, verse number one now. And the word of the Lord and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched at Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. Here we have Israel being defeated. Verse number 3, And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? God was active. He was active that day in the nation of Israel. Unfortunately for them, in a way they did not expect, God had delivered his people to the Philistines. And so they're perplexed to say, listen, why did God do that? They had a question. Now now the fact of the matter is, we, reading this portion of Scripture, we're already familiar why God did that. We already know from what we've read in the past that Eli's house house was corrupt. We understand that the priesthood during this time, with the sons Hophni and Phineas, were wicked. The priesthood was a joke. God's people were under his judgment. His people knew from Leviticus 26 that God says when you turn your back on him as his people, that he will set his face against them. Deuteronomy 28 says that he will cause them to be smitten. And so they they ask the question, Lord, why has this happened? But the truth is they answer too quickly. Because look at the next thing they say here. Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why did he do this? Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hands of the enemies. God, why did you do this? But instead of really reflecting on why this happened, they just said, wait, let's just get the Ark so we can have relief. They weren't interested in an answer. They were interested in comfort. They were in a bad spot right now. And they really didn't care how they got there or why they got there. What they wanted was immediate relief. In this context, there is no deep introspection. There is no self-examination. There is no honest transparency. There is no reflection or repentance. They just want off the hook. Lord, we've been defeated. Why did you do this? Oh, never mind. We don't want an answer. Let's get the ark for deliverance. They weren't seeking God. They were seeking comforts. And here's the problem, and we'll see it in this text. We see it in our lives. When the lesson is unlearned the first time, it will be repeated. God just, just doesn't let us off the hook. When he's trying, trying to deal with us as his children, and he will, if you are a child of God... Spurgeon said this, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. Because we are his children, God will deal with us. And if he's teaching us a lesson about ourselves, our sin, or him, and we do not learn it the first time, it's not like high school. They just pass you along just to keep you going. God doesn't do that. If you don't learn the lesson the first time, he's going to instruct us again, and this is what he does for the children of Israel. They say, let's just get the ark. The ark will deliver us. Now, there's a reason they thought this. Some 300 years prior to this, their ancestors saw the ark of God carried by the priest as they crossed into the promised land. And as the priest's feet would touch the the river Jordan with the ark of God, the river split and Israel passed on dry land. They remember the story. They have also remembered the story of Jericho, that Israel took the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, and marched around seven times, and the walls came down. And what these Israelites are thinking is this. Hey, it worked in the past. If the Ark delivers in the past, certainly if we grab it again, and, and they say this, it will save us, it will deliver us. They're equating the Ark with God's power. And here's the problem with that. It wasn't the Ark of God that dried up the river. It wasn't the Ark of God that brought the walls of Jericho down. It was the God of that Ark. And they've missed it. And now the Ark of God has become like a four-leaf clover to them. It is a rabbit's foot. It's a lucky charm. It's something that they can take. And if they take it, certainly God will act because we have his most sacred piece of furniture. It's a horseshoe. It's a plastic Jesus on the dashboard. It's a good luck charm now, is what they think. And so, in their mind, we were defeated. But God, if we take your most valuable piece of furniture with us, certainly you will have to deliver us. You will save us. They're not seeking God. They're seeking to control Him. And I have news for you. The God of heaven will be controlled by no one. By no one. And so they take the ark out to battle. Verse number 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims and the two sons of Eli, Hothni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And, and you got to get the picture here because here they go back. They've just been defeated. They've lost 4,000 men. And so they think, listen... We're in trouble. We want comfort. Let's go grab the most expensive piece of furniture, the most sacred piece of furniture. It will deliver us. And so they go back to the camp. They get the ark, and out comes the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, to walk with the ark to deliver them. Hophni and phineas good guys or bad guys? Terrible guys. They're wicked. They're part of the reason that this nation is being judged. And so here they come. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, walking with the ark. If I were to, to see this picture and, and maybe give them a name of a, new, of a new furniture or moving company, it would be two wicked men in expensive furniture. That's what I'd call them. And here they are, the two men in, you know, the deal, the furniture place. And here they come with the ark. And here they come with their lucky charm. And here they come twisting the arm of God to say, you have to deliver us because now we have your furniture Verse number 6. I'm sorry, 5. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. And so here they come, Hophni and Phinehas. They have the Ark of the Covenant and the army's there and they see it and they shout with a shout that the earth rings. It's a, it's a war whoop. They're screaming and shouting. They're excited now because the Ark of the Covenant is coming to their midst. Verse number 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. And so they hear this shout, and somehow they perceive that now the Hebrews have the Ark of the Covenant. And unfortunately for them, prior to this, they all saw the raiders of the lost Ark, and they knew that if you open up the Ark, all the faces of the Nazis melt off, and so now they're terrified. They've heard of this Ark. They've heard of the power, and now they think that they're in real trouble. Verse number 9. The captains are concerned about the, their, their army, the Philistines, and they say, be strong and quit yourselves like men. It means act like a man. Put your big boy pants on. That's what it means. I mean, that's, not, that's, a, that's maybe a different translation, but that's, it means put on your big boy pants. Okay? Quit, quit being nervous. You better fight. You better fight because if you don't fight, you're going to become slaves to these Hebrews. So you might be afraid right now, But be men, act like men, and fight. And, verse number 10, the Philistines fought. And Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hothai and Phinehas, were slain. I have to tell you something. I'm sure at this point in the story, the men of Israel and the nation were shocked. They had the Ark of God. They had the most sacred piece of furniture. This was their ace in the hole. This was their lucky charm. And yet in the midst of this, they are defeated by um, ungodly, uh, uncircumcised Philistines. There's some important implications here. I want to just point out before we finish this story. Because they mean something to us today. Number one, understand that God will suffer shame. Jehovah, God, will suffer shame rather than to allow us to carry on a false relationship with him. The God of heaven will suffer shame more than allow us to carry on a false relationship with him. What's the biggest complaint by the world about the church? The church is full of hypocrites, right? You've heard that, right? Now hypocrites are everywhere. It's not a church problem, it's a people problem. But I got news for you. Can I tell you something? The world hates hypocrites and God hates hypocrites. A matter of fact, when Jesus walked the planet, the people that he lambasted were hypocrites. You better understand something, believer. If you name the name of Christ and you are living a lie, God will suffer shame. He will allow you to fall. He will allow you to fall hard. He will allow you to be overtaken. And yes, it will bring shame to Him, but He is not going to allow you to remain in a false relationship with Him. God is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Not looking for hypocrites. Hypocrites. And so, God will suffer shame rather than allow us to carry on a false relation with him. Number two implication, the second implication from this is this. He will allow us to be disappointed with him if it will awaken us to who he really is. The God of heaven will allow us to be disappointed in him if it will awaken us to who he really is. Too many of us think of God as our lucky charm our ace in the hole, our rabbit's foot, our plastic Jesus on the dashboard, that, hey, listen, as long as I call your name, as long as I'm a Christian, that you will do whatever I want you to do. That is not the God of the Bible. He is not a genie in a lamp. He is God. And so often, he will allow us to be disappointed in him when we have this perception of who he is that's not real or accurate. And we do this. I was thinking about this point this week, and I thought in my life, was there a time in my life that I've I've actually done this, that God allowed me to be disappointed in him to reveal himself to me? And the answer is yes. About 12 years ago, by the way, tomorrow we will celebrate the beginning of our 13th year of being here. God bless you folks who have lasted so long. I really appreciate that. I I didn't think, no, don't clap, don't clap, don't clap. If you're clapping for yourself, that's fine, but don't clap for anything else, all right? If you're clapping like, yeah, we made it, praise the Lord, that's a good thing. I would clap with you, all right? But about 12 years ago, when we came here, um, the church was kind and gracious, they had nothing. I look around the room this morning, I see folks who were here in the beginning, and I'm, I'm overwhelmed by that. And uh, the men said, listen, we can't give you anything, we give you 100 bucks a week, which for a family of five is really good money, all right? <laughs> with three boys and groceries, it's a good deal. And... Um, but we have the bands, and so and that was great. And so we had to have outside support. And we had, we had churches who, who, who said, hey, for two years, we'll support you until you get that thing going. And after two years, most of them dropped support. We had support for maybe the third year, but that was it, that we were autonomous. But in that time, there were times we had struggles. I remember this, this one year, uh, about 12 years ago. It was in the summer, and, and we, we were struggling. I mean struggling. And the boys were invited to go to camp in Bridgeport, the church I had come from. And I was taking them up there, and I thought, okay, Lord, I need, I need, I need this. This is what I need. And it was an amount, of, I need this amount of money. And so when I, here's how it's going to work, God, right? I, I'm going to go to Bridgeport. I'm going to drop the kids off for camp. There's a mailbox up there. I'll check the mailbox. I'll talk to the secretaries. I'll sort of linger around there until somebody hands me a check for the exact amount of money I need, and I'll praise you, Lord, and drive home and be happy. I don't know if you do that, but oftentimes I, I tell God, this is what we're doing today, all right? And that, that was my mindset, that certainly this is how it's going to work. So I drove the boys up. I, I stuck around a little bit. And a strange thing happened. I, I looked in the mailbox. There was nothing there. And, I, and then I asked some of the secretaries, hey, is there any, any mail It's on the desk? or No. Uh, anybody leave anything for me? Uh, no. Um, do you have any money for me? It's like, no. No. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this is strange. I mean, I just dropped the boys up. I'm by myself. I got drive back home. The need is not going to be met. And uh, so I, I stuck around for about 10 more minutes just walking back and forth in the hallways hoping to bump into a millionaire and, because this was God's plan. And, uh, and after about, you know, an hour of this, I realized it wasn't happening. I'll never forget, I got in my car and I got on Exit 144 heading back to Canada. And I was so disappointed in God. I wept because the truth is I didn't know how we were going to take care of this need and God did not do it the way I thought that he should and I was disappointed in him because he, he didn't do what I said he, he wasn't at my, my beckoning call he didn't. and I remember after weeping and, and being mad and upset God speaking to me and saying Rick I want to tell you something I am good regardless of what happens in your life Whether you get a check or not, or you think I should do this for you, I am good, irregardless of your situation, because I am God. And I was convicted and troubled by that, and I finally concluded that, yes, you're right, forgive me. He allowed me to be disappointed in Him, so He could reveal to me who He truly was. I have to be honest with you. Um, There wasn't a check. I don't even know how we survived that. I I can't even remember now. But we did. Twelve years later, I'm still here. But God revealed himself. He allowed me to be disappointed in him so that we could see him for who he truly was. And he'll do that in your life. And then a third implication as we move through the story, we'll get back to it in a minute. But what seemed like a defeat was not. Israel was defeated, certainly, but God was protecting his honor. He said judgment would come, it came, and all of Shiloh would know that God was holy and God was righteous. And the Philistines, they thought they had a great battle won here, they had great victory. We're going to see in the next couple chapters. They were mistaken. They're going to find out who God is too, as their god Dagon falls before him and breaks his arms and legs and his head off. God would reveal Himself to the Philistines, and this was an act of grace because God was removing evil and poor leadership so his people could be blessed. And so Israel is defeated. Look at verse number twelve. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh. The same day, with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head, a sign of mourning and distress. And when he came, lo, Eli, sat upon a seat by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And he knew this was not right. This was not the answer. He, he, he still, in his state, understood the importance of God and, and his purpose. And when the man came to the city, he told all of it, and the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass, when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell from the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died, and he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel and the ark of God is taken. It's a tragic story. We come to the end of Eli's life. And because of his lack of restraint and respect for God, allowing his children to do whatever they wanted to do, God says, I will judge you. His word is true. He is judged. Israel is judged. Eli hears about his son's death, which is devastating. And then he hears about the ark of God being taken. And he falls backwards from his chair, breaks his neck. He dies. His daughter-in-law goes into labor. And she's going to labor, she gives birth to a child and she calls his name Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. I want to just focus on that statement this morning as we bring this story to a conclusion. Uh, Because this statement that she makes where she says, the glory of God has departed because the ark is taken. The statement is not correct in one sense. She says the glory of God has left Israel because his ark was captured. That's not what happened. The ark was captured because the glory of God had already departed from Israel. It wasn't about the furniture. It was about God. She was mistaken on that. But she was more than accurate with the importance of the glory of God. I want to talk to you just briefly this morning about the glory of God. We, we say that, we talk about that. We say we should glorify His name, we should live for His glory. But what does that mean? I mean, every believer here would say, Pastor, you're right, we should live a life that glorifies God. We should live for His glory. It's all about His glory, and it is. Phineas's wife had it right because the most valuable thing in all of the universe is the glory of God. And so it's imperative this morning that we know what it is and that we know how to interact with that glory. When the Bible says glory, it's an interesting word. It it literally means weight. And in ancient days, anything of value was heavy. I mean, treasure, gold, even abundance, it, it had weight to it. And when the Bible speaks about God's glory, it is God's value, it is God's worth. Uh, The idea is this outshining of the infinite value of all that God is. And so when we say this morning, the glory of God, what we are saying is, this is God, this is who He is, this is His value, this is His worth. It's all about Him, the glory of God. I want you to know this morning that we were made to see it, to see it. In the Old Testament we have these, these stories of the Shekinah glory of God, where God comes down among his people and there's such a bright light that they can't approach it, right? And that's his moral excellence and goodness. It's it's, it's so bright and so beautiful that man cannot look upon it. Moses wanted to and God said, you know what, Moses, you can't. If you see it, you will die. That's his glory. But in a real sense, we were made to see it. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. Can I tell you something this morning? As you look at yourself, and you are a creation of God, and we don't think enough, this body of ours created by God shouts out the glory of God. Your vision, your hearing, your mind, your capacity to do things, to think. To reason. They all shout, out. listen, there is a God in heaven. He is the creator. And this creator, by his work, shows his worth and value and his glory. The reason we respect life and men and women, because they were created after the image of God, we show his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. Not only do we as his creation, but this universe shouts, the glory of God. I mean, have you ever thought about the earth we live on, this planet? It is less than a pinprick in our galaxy. And yet now the Hubble telescope is sending back pictures that are showing us things 12 billion light years away. Can you fathom 12 billion light years away? And if you can, maybe maybe the doctor with the mathematics can. I'm not sure. Maybe Sarah can. She can't even... If she can't, you can't. Okay? You can't fathom 12 billion light years away. You say, man, that that seems like an overkill. What's the purpose? The purpose is this. As we look out to these galaxies and we see that that they're, they're infinite, God is saying, I want you to know something. This shouts out my worth and my value. Because this galaxy, these 12 billion light years away, they're only scratching the surface of the God that I am. That's the God we serve, right? We were made to see it in creation. And creation shouts out, God, you are worthy of glory and honor and praise because you alone are God. We see it in creation. We see it in Christ. We see the glory, the worth, the value of God in Christ. Listen to these verses. John 1, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Hebrews 1.3, Who being, speaking of Christ, the brightness of His glory, the radiance of the glory of God, and the expressed image, the exact imprint of His person. This is Jesus Christ. I want you to know something this morning. As we think about Jesus Christ, He expresses the glory of God the wonder of Christ, His person, who He is, His beauty, His worth, His value. We were made to see it in creation. We were made to see it in Christ. We were made to see it in the cross. The cross shouts out the glory of God because at Calvary, mercy and justice collide. They meet there. They meet. And God the Creator, the holy, perfect God, reached down to his rebel creation and said, you deserve death, you deserve punishment, you deserve hell. But in the cross of Christ, I will reconcile you back to myself. Because Jesus Christ robed himself in humanity, took upon him the form of a servant, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And at Calvary we see the glory of God. We were made to see it. We see it in creation. We see it in Christ. We see it in his cross. But not only that, we were made to savor it. To savor it. When we stop confessing, Thou art worthy, and start chanting, you are useful. We've missed the worthy worth of the glory of God. That's what Israel did. It wasn't you are worthy, Lord. We, we see you for who you are. We're going to repent. It's like, no, you're useful. You can deliver us. And when we get to that point, we are in trouble. Because then it comes about, becomes about us. When he is useful, it becomes about our goals, our dreams, our plans, our comfort, our praise, our accomplishments, our acceptance, our health, our wealth, and our lives. It's not about that. When we see God for who he is, we should savor his glory. Let me read you this quote this morning. It says, The universe shudders in horror that we have this infinitely valuable, infinitely deep, infinitely rich, infinitely wise, infinitely loving God, and instead of pursuing him with steadfast passion and enthralled fury, instead of loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead of attributing to him glory and honor and praise and power and wisdom and strength. We just try to take his toys and run. It is still idolatry to want God for his benefits, but not for himself. I'm telling you something. The greatest thing in the world is God's glory. And we are made to savor it, to rejoice in it. There is nothing in this world that is static. Everything is passing away. Everything. You and I, we are marching to the grave. And everything that we savor and love in this world, as much as it means to us, someday it will be gone. Isn't it funny the things that we savor and we love and we enjoy? I love that restaurant. It's my favorite. Carrabba's. I just, I mean, I love that. Good Italian food. It's it's all passing away, all of it. And the only thing that will last is God and his glory and his kingdom. We were made to see it. We were made to savor it and enjoy it. And then finally this morning, we were made to show it. The value and worth of God, his glory, we as his people are made to show it. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He's talking about salt and light, and you, you know the context there. And then he says this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. God's glory, His worth, His value. He says, as my children, I want your life to shine so that people will see what you do, and when they see it, they will not pat you on the back. They will glorify me. Our life to bring glory to God means this, that we as his people make much about him. It's all about him. It's not about me or what I do. It's about him. You say, Pastor, I mean, I'm not a a preacher. I'm not a pastor. How am I supposed to do that? Hey, if you're at home raising your kids and you're instructing them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and you're filling their hearts and their minds with the Word of God, and you're directing them toward Him, listen, if you do that, you are glorifying God. You are making much of Him. Hey, if you go to work tomorrow, and you're a man or woman of integrity, and you work hard and you tell the truth, even if it costs you something, and when you're asked about it, you, you, you deflect that glory and praise. It's not because I'm a good guy. It's not because I'm a good girl. The reason I do what I do is because Jesus Christ saved me. It's all about Him. When I make much about Him, I glorify Him. When I have a neighbor who's in trouble and struggling, and they could use a meal or could use some money or could use some help, and I go over and I help them. I say, man, you're such a nice guy. You're such a nice woman. Man, I don't know why you do this. It's wonderful. I don't say, yeah, you're right. I say, no, the truth is, I'm a scoundrel. You don't know me. The reason I do what I do is because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to speak volumes about Him. That's glorifying Him. It's when I submit to the Spirit of God and allow Him to do a deeper work in my heart and life to where He changes me. Not just what I'm wearing, my haircut, my dress, not my dress, your dress, my, your, your clothing, right? It's not about, but I mean, he really changes me. And God is doing a work in my heart and life so that my attitude changes, my spirit changes, my desires change. And it's obvious, obvious and evident to everyone around me that God is doing something. That brings him glory because it's not about me anymore. It's an act of God that he is transforming me into the image of Jesus Christ. Phineas's wife said, name that kid Ichabod. Because the glory of the Lord departed because they took the ark. You know, sister, wrong. That's not what happened. The ark was taken because the glory had already departed. And we better be careful as believers that, that, that Ichabod is not written on our lives. It's all about God's glory. My friend, it's not about you. It's not about me. We take up a sliver in this big picture of God's kingdom. But when we do what we're supposed to do, when we, when we seek to make much of him, we honor him and we bring him glory because he is truly worth all of our praise, all of our lives, and everything we can give to him. Are you glorifying God? Or would someone look at you and say, Ichabod? There, there's nothing happening there. No, no. We see it. We see it in creation. We see it in the cross. We see it in Calvary. Right? We should be savoring it. We should think about the, the God that we have and serve, and in our lives we should show the glory of God. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.